This is The Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the networking business where we discuss vendors, moves, news, and analysis on products positioning and look at the business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break. We think. We'll try. I'm Greg Farrow. You'll know me as the writer at ethereumind.com and also the host of the Packet Pushes podcast. And with me today is Andrew Connery-Murray. How are you today, Andrew? I'm good, Greg. Uh, and we've also got a special guest, Kurt Marco, joining us. Uh, Kurt is a writer. Uh, he writes for Network Computing and Information Week. Uh, he's got a long experience in IT as an IT professional and an engineer. He's got a background in electrical engineering, and he's a genuinely all-around smart guy. I grew. Hi, Greg. Nice to be with you today. Well, let's just get straight into some of the news. Uh, probably the first topic in no particular order is Cisco ACI this week announced that the ACI strategy now includes security, or more correctly, the security division announced that it was ACI ready and it would be implementing or has already implemented the appropriate pieces to go with it. Uh, This, of course, signals to everybody in the world that ACI is not just about the data center and it also there's a sister announcement that went with it where the WAN part of Cisco's portfolio is also going to be integrated into ACI. And I also figure that just about everything else inside of Cisco is going to be included into Cisco ACI, kitchen sinks, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, <laughs> photonics gear, everything that Cisco's got is going to be part of, of Cisco ACI. I mean, Kurt, have, have you I seen that? Yeah. yeah, I did. And there was actually another little bit of news here. Um, that I caught that they've invested in Embrane, uh, which does like, uh, they call it NFV type, but you know, layer seven virtual services. Um, I'm sure you talked to those guys, Dante and mm-hmm. Embrane guys somehow. And I don't have the, uh, the release in front of me, but, uh, I think Cisco is partnering with those guys. It was a $6 million investment from Cisco. Which- which I found uh, interesting and kind of ties into this whole um, application network services in ACI. Yeah, I thought it was interesting um, in part because Embrane uh, has its own firewall and load, virtual firewall and load balancing capabilities. So uh, not sure what the security division inside Cisco thinks of that, but uh, clearly it seems like the Embrane play is Cisco trying to have an answer to NSX and its ability to spin up virtual firewalls and load balancing here and there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in a way it made sense, but then I um, I wasn't quite sure what, you know, I haven't gone through the feature sets to see what difference, you know, Embrane, uh, what their firewall and um, I think they've got load balancing, all the usual stuff kind of what they're bringing to the table that Cisco wasn't already planning. Um, maybe it was just a deal that they already had it working and Cisco was still a work in progress. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's always some of that too. Um, yeah, I don't, myself, I don't see Embrane as a enterprise product. I see it more as an NFV service provider play. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. I, I keep talking to the Embrane guys, and you know, and if if Cisco's going to back Embrane for its portfolio of layer four to seven services, which is flow balancers, load balancers, you know, firewalls, and you know, software deployed systems like this, 
where does that leave its other partners like Paolo and F5 and Citrix and so forth with all their advanced stuff? Um, don't quite understand what Cisco needs this technology for if it's going to partner with everybody and then compete with them at the same time. Yeah. Good point. Maybe they've got like some sort of like an app store type of... Uh... Uh, strategy going on here that will just build a platform and let other people plug into it. I think, Greg, we had talked about this last week when we talked about you know all of the different um, SDN controller pies that Cisco has its finger in with you know ACI and Open Daylight and its other controllers. Um, you know, they're sort of they want to be all things to all people, and so this seems like if that's the strategy that Embrain is a part of that. And I think the App Store idea is interesting. Well, HP's got an app store and uh, for its SDN strategy, which had it's been pushing around for about six to twelve months. And uh, to date, only everybody I've talked to about the I think the HP app store is a great idea for their SDN strategy. It promotes a different way of thinking. It is a marketing um, differentiator. Yes. Most people that I've spoke to can't understand it and have you know tended towards the ridicule. I don't want an app store for my SDN for my network. I want tools that I can drop millions and millions of dollars into because that's the only thing. Oh, I don't know. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't anticipate any 99-cent apps in the HP App Store. I don't know. Let me at it. <laughs> I can make a farting SDN app like the best of them. I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I, some $9,999. dollars <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think the overall pitch here is that Cisco ACI is not just a uh, a physical strategy. So the, the launch that we saw last year, Cisco was emphasizing its physical capabilities to be able to orchestrate physical network port to physical network port over using an overlay network. And that's what they launched with was that feature. Um, and it sort of feels like they might have missed a key aspect of this or, or maybe got off on the wrong foot there by saying, forgetting to say, yeah, we do physicals and we do virtuals, but we're also going to orchestrate a whole bunch of other tools end to end. We're going to take the whole network and turn it into one big thing, which we're going to control all of it, whether it's a an F5 load balancer or an Embrane load balancer or a Cisco ASA or a Cisco source fire or an iron port or a Wi-Fi controller or a UCS server or a Whiptail, sorry, UCS Invicta storage array, they're all going to come in through ACI as a, as a single point of control. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, and kind of, you're right, they didn't make that clear at the launch. And, you know, these partner agreements take time. That might have been some of it. And you don't want to really come out and say, we have this grand strategy to you know, be the broker for everybody else's products and then have everybody else start rejecting you. You know, kind of don't look too great. But, mm. you know, that could have been the strategy all along. It's just, in, you know, taking time to, uh, to to pull these people, you know, into the Cisco uh, universe. Don't know. Hard to tell. The game will play out. I guess we should move on. Just a note, uh, people listening to this, you know, the Cisco reports this afternoon um, as we record this. So there might be some interesting little tidbits, uh, usually in the uh, conference call where some of that stuff come, might come out. So could have some more information very okay. soon. 
I'll be looking for something in the news feeds. Uh, Google this week uh, announced a disruptor, potential disruptor to the teleconferencing business, Kurt. Tell us a little bit about the Chromebox for Meetings bundle. Yeah, this is, this is kind of interesting. Um, as, a, uh, as an unabashed Chrome user, actually, uh, full disclosure, I'm, uh, Chromebox is like my main uh, platform now for doing a lot of my writing. Um, I just find that uh, I, you know, not to not to strike a religious war, but just the convenience, the speed, the, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, it's been kind of a neglected um, platform in Google's Chrome ecosystem. You know, there's been most of the focus has been on low-cost laptops. And so everybody kind of wondered, well, what, what's happening with the Chromebox? You know, no one's really released one in about a, over a year. And, you know, we've had revs of Haswell chips and a whole new slew of Chromebooks from various partners. Um, and then there was some noise that Asus and um, was, was uh, going to release a new Chromebox. And everybody was kind of speculating, ah, maybe it's going to be kind of like a set-top box, kind of a Chromecast on steroids. You know, how are they going to pitch this? Because yep. there aren't many people out there like me that kind of have made it their desktop. But lo and behold, they kind of, they're turning it into a um, teleconferencing, telepresence bundle where they're partnering with Logitech. The camera looked exactly like this really high-end Logitech. Um, then they were they also partnered with uh, Video um, that has a some really high-quality uh, codec technology. I guess the and question the, is, does anybody care about teleconferencing? Because I sure as don't. I don't. <laughs> um, do you do you use teleconferencing, Kurt? I mean, does anybody? I'll admit, very occasionally, and I. You know, I think teleconferencing is kind of one of those things that it's greater in theory than in practice. Yeah. And it, we've always been waiting for somebody to pull together that experience to make it, you know, super convenient and easy. And no one ever seems to do it. It's like always yeah. there's glitches. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I've always believed that teleconference is a really good idea right the way up until when I've used it. Like, I have a... Uh... I have one of these fancy MacBooks and screens, and they've all got high-quality cameras in them, and I never use yeah. them because I live in a place which has no bandwidth. Now, potentially that's me, but I really don't, you know, and even when I've used a teleconferencing system to see the people at the other end of it, it's really not added anything to the process. If anything, it's been a negative. So I think, you know, while it's interesting to see that Google's having another go at teleconferencing, you know, Cisco's had a go at this market, um, several times in retail and corporate forms, and it, HP had a go and then threw it back out again. Um, Polycom still hasn't really gotten into this market in any successful way. Um, it's used occasionally for certain niche use cases where there's more money than cents, but I don't see anybody, you know, even people on iPhones, right? Every iPhone comes with a high-quality camera where people can use FaceTime. How often do you actually see people using FaceTime? Very rarely. So I, I think teleconferencing, VDI... And, uh, you know, free drugs for everybody. They're all the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I kind of wonder, I think what Google's trying to do is um, tackle 
if not the enterprise market, then the SMB market with this because it's it's cheap. I think they also part. You mentioned they partner with video on it, um, so you don't need an expensive teleconference infrastructure to make this work. And in theory, you don't need an expensive uh, connector to other people's systems who who may have that in- expensive infrastructure. So they're trying to make it cheaper, and I think if if it's cheaper and easier, maybe more people will start to use it. And I also wonder if there's a generational divide coming up where there are younger people who are experimenting with Google Hangout and stuff like that who may be more comfortable with video conferencing. Um, I'm definitely not in that generation, and I'm with you, Greg, that I think video conferencing isn't really worth the trouble, but maybe there are people Mm. coming up who are, that's how they live, and they want to see who they're talking to, at least in a business setting. Yeah, I I agree with you, um, Drew, that it is... You know, this is definitely a business product. You know, you hit the Google site, it's it goes to their business sales channel. Um, and it it does seem to be targeted to, you know, the SMB, the, the, the market that maybe have been intrigued by a Polycom or Cisco system, but, you know, wasn't real uh, keen on spending well into four figures on it. And... Um, the video uh, codec technology really could be significant. I haven't got, you know, I haven't done a deep technical dive into this, but I know Patrick Moorhead, some of you guys may know him. He did a really good analysis of, of that on a column. I think it was on his Forbes column um, where he uh, looked at, you know, kind of the bandwidth overhead and found like the, the quality you could get even with, fairly uh, low bandwidth connections was pretty astounding. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see, but you know, they're definitely putting some technological firepower behind this. And for a thousand bucks, it's a, looks like a pretty nice bundle. So maybe it's all just a backdoor to get more people on Google plus. Yeah. Or hangouts or whatever. Yeah. I still don't care teleconferencing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, Kurt, you uh, also flagged out an issue this week about the second-tier networking vendors like Extreme. Uh, of course, Extreme and Enterasys merged uh, late last year. As uh, somebody was drawing my attention to the fact that uh, in the oh, about five years ago, there was a Gartner Magic Quadrant thing that always had Cisco in the top right-hand side, and then they had the seven dwarves down the bottom left, you know, Juniper, Brocade, Foundry, and all those types of things. And we're actually seeing a couple of stories this week where Alcatel-Lucent sold off their enterprise division to a company in China, so no more Alcatel-Lucent enterprise switching division or routing division. Uh, And you're also saying that Extreme had some stuff happening. So tell us what happened to Extreme this week, Kurt. Yeah, well, again, this was... uh... It was an earnings story, you know. They they came out with their earnings. It was it was a miss. The stock got hammered, and so it it brings up the usual um, questions about like how viable are these second tier networking vendors? And in my mind, the you know the significance, although the financial thing was kind of the trigger, it got me to thinking about like this a potential for this whole transformation to more disruptive switching technology, you know, the white box, the cumuluses, the pick of eights. Yeah. The, the OEM, mm-hmm. the, the build yeah. like 
Quanta. Like I think Intel Intel's reference platform goes for them. Any so, so I'm kind of wondering if uh, this may be a uh, kind of a, a first inkling that that some of those vendors that were kind of living on Cisco's coattails are you know, now may be disrupted themselves from from underneath, you know, kind of a classic disruptive technology paradigm. Yeah, Extreme's possibly one of the companies that is most likely to be disrupted by the white box OEM commodity products. So if you are sort of an organization that can afford to, you know, buy a white box Ethernet switch and put Cumulus Linux on it, or even just use the one that ships from the manufacturer because you have very simple cam... I'm not so sure if it's an extreme problem, but I actually think most of the campus networks are vulnerable to this. If you figure that most organizations who buy campus switches do very simple things with them, and if you could buy a white box switch that's got 48 one gig ports for a thousand bucks, you know, 2000 bucks, you might just look at that and go, you know, for a campus switch, which I barely use and spends 10 years sitting in a cupboard rotting away, that might be a good investment. So yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something in that. Yeah, and, and there was kind of another little piece, you know, that this to, came to this is when uh, Pluribus announced, and I think you guys talked about this last week, but, you know, they, they were kind of pitching their SDN story, as does everybody, but, you know, the, it's based on basically a, an Intel server, you know, so hmm. it's switch, switch in a box, Um you know, Intel server with, uh, I think it's some probably variant of Linux, but, you know, this whole idea that um, switching becomes just another application that you can do on industry standard server hardware um, starts to, you know, it, it, it could be very disruptive to that, as you say, simple end of the uh, switching market. But I think we've, I mean, haven't we, I think we've heard this argument or had this discussion before that, you know, there's always been cheap switches on the market and folks like, for campus like HP and Dell have, have kind of chugged along doing okay. So uh, is, is this really a significant change or are people, do you think, really ready to gamble on white box switch or, or a really no name, no brand cheap switch just because they're going to pop it in the campus? I think so. I think there's a genuine change. There's no innovation in the campus that makes it worth doing. And yeah, and I think the other the other thing you have is that you've got kind of an existence proof by, like, the people running the internet are doing this. You know, the, the Googles. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like you're not really taking as big of a risk if, yep. if like. Yeah, you know, five he, years ago, I could never have gone and bought a Netgear chassis. And put it into my campus because everybody would have gone oh, but what if it breaks you know there's super magic powers inside there and you can't possibly be sure that it's going to <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, and i guess that in the intervening years we've sort of seen our campus network simplify we understand the you know the, the spanning tree and the technologies in the campus and you know to be real in most corporate sites the campus network is less important than it used to be as we see tablets and phones and laptops move around the building on Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi has is the more important 
network. And Campus really is just for the low-cost, low-vitality systems of desktops on people's desks. You know, what magic <laughs> value can you add to that? Or what about in Metro Ethernet where it, the, the sheer volume of products there? So uh, five years ago, a Metro Ethernet Edge required a switch which could do Q&Q or SPB or, you know, had all these magic features. Well, today there's companies like Telco Systems who sell an eight-port, 10-gigabit switch that does all of those things for sub-1,000 bucks. Um, the market's changing. It's, this commoditization process is, I think, changing the whole dynamics behind the market, and the numbers are real. Like Facebook at the Open Compute said they saved $1.2 billion by using low-cost open source, you know, by using these cheap servers and things. Well, that's... By, in anybody's language, that's real money. That's not, you know, I paid a little bit extra to get the quality or the name brand or, you know, I'm down at the local car dealership and I've decided I want, I don't want the Hyundai, I want the Kia, you know, or whatever, and I will go for the better quality. $1.2 billion is bugger the better quality. I want the $1.2 billion. <laughs> I guess, I guess I still feel like, though, that there's... I mean, for one, still an element of the magical thinking that affects purchase decisions when it comes down to it. Because if for some reason a campus switch does go down, then the guy who bought the white box is the guy that they say, what did you do that for? Uh, and so the risk, you know, that, that he's, he's, he's got more behind him if he says, well, this is HP's fault or whatever. I suspect we're going to – yeah, I agree. I, th I suspect we're going to keep coming back on this one over the next six months because – commoditization and white box is never going to end it's going to be a continuing trend but one of the new things this week of course is network neutrality there was a blog post this week where someone claimed that a, a, a help desk monkey at verizon confirmed that network throttling was going on as if the guy on the help desk would actually know what a multi-billion dollar network is doing uh, but uh, there's been a bunch of blog posts this week about whether netflix traffic specifically is being throttled by the carriers and what does that mean for the future of the internet? As a consumer who doesn't have uh, cable, which is how a lot of traditional TV comes into American homes now, um, I would be devastated if it turned out that the carriers were messing around and uh, you know, doing some rate limiting or other trickery to kill my Netflix streaming because that's where I get all my entertainment from. So my view on this is that for the for the actual consumer, it's more this whole argument is more for entertainment value than actual something to worry about because it's like I call it the battle of titans. It's the car it's the carriers, you know, AT and T, Verizon, Time Warner, Cox, whatever, against you know, so all these gigantic corporations against a whole other set of gigantic corporations <laughs> google netflix amazon so my point being is that the content providers are going to be all over this you know we're already seeing netflix has these uh quality monitors where they're rating different carriers by the average um quality and download speed and they are just they're going to expose if this is happening they will expose it they will then either try and rally um you know public support to pressure the carriers to to relent or they'll they'll just strike an agreement and it, it may not even it may be some sort of uh, mutual um 
almost like a patent sharing agreement because you know yeah. the carriers actually have benefits to gain from the content providers as well you but, know, i mean is it I'm fair to using... charge the so the, today the carriers charge the customer for bandwidth is it fair then to charge the source and the destination and double dip on the bandwidth ultimately the net neutrality issue comes down to today kurt at home watching tv and you know a while i personally might recommend that you should all stop watching tv and do something real with your lives right <laughs> but really you're paying for the bandwidth to get netflix to deliver you the app is it right for the carrier in the middle to then turn around and stick google and netflix with another fee for putting the traffic onto the network that's charging two ends against the middle and that's also illegal yeah i agree that's well, the question of course, of course the, the uh the content providers are already paying to get bandwidth onto the backbone, right? I mean, they've mm. got like 10 gigabit fiber connections and peering agreements and what have you. So, you know, they're already paying on that end. I think the argument is, should they then pay a bonus tax to get preferential treatment on the, for the last mile? You know, kind of a quality of service argument. That, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could see an argument for that. Like if somebody has a, um, you know, a limited bandwidth connection and that, you know, the movie streaming service decides that they want to ensure that they always have the best possible experience regardless of the final mile link, maybe it makes sense to, you know, I don't know, without having some sort of, end-to-end QoS standard that everybody is following. Um, mm. I don't know. Yep. I mean, we're not going to solve the problem here. I reckon you should all stop watching TV. That'll sort it out. <laughs> so uh, we also, in the last so, week or so, saw VMware buying AirWatch and BlackBerry attempting to reposition itself as a software company, specifically around its mobile device management software, the much-despised and loathed BlackBerry Enterprise Server. <laughs> loathe that product caused me wasted more of my life than i care to think about uh and of course these are all and then of course uh blackberry lost the guy who's the head of the blackberry enterprise server business this week is mobile device management a feature instead of a standalone product category that means you know if vmware buys airwatch and just bonds it in as part of vmware's uh, end user computes product does that mean that mobile device management no longer a standalone product category kurt i've long contended that that is the case that that these point these point providers in mdm the only reason for resistance is that it was such a it was a relatively new um market you know new feature set but that over time that that capability would be subsumed into kind of larger uh, system management client endpoint management suites of course, I said the same thing about, you know, cloud file sharing and somehow Dropbox and Box are still independent companies, but maybe they're just, that's another point. Mm. But no, I, I do think that we're seeing that MDM is, it's just another, it's kind of a combination system management and security product that will just, I, I believe, just gradually get rolled into larger larger suites kind of the way like end, yep. endpoint firewalls and and antivirus all just ended up as one product that's true andrew are you into mdm at all 
Um, I see it as becoming essentially a compliance checkbox that people will have to say, yes, we've put it on there because we want to protect the data and we take it seriously. Um, and it's not really going to help uh, solve any of our uh, core security problems, but um, there's a hysteria about mobile devices, and so that's great for selling product, and uh, you get to tick that box when the auditor comes to town. So Yeah. I, I guess for me, the, the interesting piece about this story was that it was VMware doing the buying. You know, yeah. This is a company that's... You know, it's in the business of kind of managing infrastructure and servers. And now, um, and I, I think I saw a quote from Gelsinger somewhere that, you know, to the effect that, you know, they really saw this, you know, the client piece as, as something that they needed to get into. Or, the, you know, the, the whole notion that they're now going after uh, endpoints and, and pulling that into the ecosystem to me was actually more revealing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like I thought it was an odd purchase myself and, um, but it, maybe this is also an attempt. What, what VMware is thinking is we want to create a virtual infrastructure that runs from the server through to the client um, because we want you to buy our VDI products. Um, and this is a way to be on the device, um, you know, ahead of, companies thinking about, yes, we actually want to have a, a VDI strategy that runs from the data center out to every mobile device. Right. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, of course, you know, they, they still had or have Horizon. I don't know whatever happened to that, but, you know, the, the client-side virtualization, kind mm. of a clever idea, but it never really went anywhere. I'm, I'm completely dubious about MDM. I don't think the functionality to maintain mobile devices in Android or iOS is there. In other words, there's no operating system support for those features. So everything that you put on top of it is a dreadful kludge and it works really, really badly. And you talk to the people who are running fleets of Android phones or Android tablets or iPads or iPad tablets, whether it's Apple's own platform or whether it's, you know, OEM or you go and talk to good um, the, the people, you know, the good company, I can't remember the name of the company, whatever they are. Yeah, you good know, technology. Good technologies. The people who run those things just consistently tell you they are shocking and shockingly bad. And then nothing good about them. The You know, people lose the devices. The software isn't reliable. When you delete the software, it deletes user data. Custom, you know, people who are using them don't like them. It's not there yet. In, until they solve those problems and the operating systems inside of iOS and the Android operating system supports decent features to support the enterprise, it's going to be a pain point. It's never going to be successful. It's always going to be less than perfect. And I don't think, and now the simple point here is, there's no incentive for iOS and Android to put in features to support the enterprise because the enterprise does not matter. It, the enterprise is an insignificant sales base for those products. You know, the, re the consumer has wins here. The consumer buys 98% of all handsets, not, and the enterprise is not the dog is not the tail wagging that dog. They are the tail. In fact, right at the very tip of the tail, there's five little scrungy hairs that have been kicked around in the dirt and poop and water. That's the enterprise industry on the back of a telephone, right. a smartphone. So, you know. Yep, they are definitely the fleas on the tail. Agreed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and. The uh, you know, and, and I would agree with your assessment that MDM is still a kludge. It does provide some 
you know, valuable features. I mean, it can do kind of the bare minimum stuff, like making sure people have screen passwords, which a shockingly high percentage still don't. Mm. Can enable the find your phone and, and remote wipe stuff. You know, some basics that I guess yeah. are better than nothing. I guess so, but at the end of the day, you know, the things that you're looking for for these products to do don't are not elegant or sophisticated or stable or reliable. They're nasty hacks at best. Yep. And I think uh, back in the laptop days when laptops were a big deal, we saw lots of efforts to try to control that endpoint as well. And even though 99.9% .9 of all laptops were Windows, that was also an ugly kludge. Um, so I agree with Greg that uh, trying to do it on mobile devices is just, I don't think we're ever going to get to a real elegant solution. Yeah, which led to VDI once again. <laughs> right, <laughs> and we're still not there. Everything comes back to VDI. VDI is a fever dream of uh, you know, VMware and Citrix that I don't see ever coming to fruition. I mean, the segment's going to develop over time. At the end of the day, you've got to realize that iOS is only four years old. You're still shoehorning an entire computer into a device the size of a few credit cards. <laughs> you know, the market segment is hardly mature, so maybe VMware is getting in early to make sure they're well positioned for whatever comes out in the end. But sure. And ultimately, it comes down to why is VMware emphasizing end-user compute when this isn't the year of VDI? Not this year, not next year. With, with BlackBerry, the, the uh, strategy is clear. It's like, this is all we have left. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very harsh. Well, I think uh, my coffee's finished. How about you, Andrew? Your coffee done? I'm all done. I'm ready for my next cup. You're ready for your next cup? Well, I think we should probably wrap it up about there. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Kurt. Where can people find you on the internet? All over the place. Look for me on Network Computing, Information Week, um, and I can't announce it yet, yet but there'll be some other uh, high-visibility spots. You'll find my elegant writing soon. Excellent. So you're searching for the words K-U-R-T, Kurt, and his last name yep. is Marco, M-A-R-K-R-O. Uh, and also, and Mr. you can find me on Twitter at K-R Marco. Perfect. Andrew? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at interop underscore Andrew uh, or on informationweek.com and at interop. Okay, and of course, I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at ethereummind.com. On the Twitter is at ethereummind. And you can find out more about the show. We've put the links to all the articles that we've discussed in the show notes, and you can find them at packetpushes.net in the community podcast feed. As you can tell, we still haven't worked out a good name for today's show, so it's still called The Coffee Break, a work in progress title while we polish the fiber optic cables. If you've got any suggestions for that name, do please send an email to packetpushes at gmail.net, and uh, we'd look forward to hearing from you. Uh, coffee Break is over. Go back to work. <laughs>